This is the Work Minus Podcast, where we talk about what we need to drop from how we work today and transformative ideas to help you build a better workplace. To hear all of our episodes and read articles about how you can improve your workplace, go to workminus.com. Today, our guest is Jennifer Brown. She's the president and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, author of the book, Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change, host of the podcast, The Will to Change, and a keynote speaker around the world. This episode is Work Minus Bias. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Hi, Neil. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's amazing to have you on the show. You've done so much for the work of, of diversity and inclusion, a lot of things that are around you. One of the main things we like to hear is is just your thesis around diversity and inclusion, about how we all carry these stigmas and we all carry these privileges. So can you go into a little bit more detail about how you came to that conclusion? Sure. Uh, well, it's been it's become a, a passion in addition to being you know what I get to work on every day. Um, I am a member of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community. We all use LGBT just to shorten it. Sure. Um, and I've been out since I was 22 and I'm in my 40s, um, but, you know, happy to be in my 40s. I'm not going to say bad things about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, so having been a member of a community that is traditionally marginalized um, and kind of navigating that, finding my voice in that context and having to learn about quickly uh, people's bias against a whole host of identities, you know, of which I, p- I possess several that are traditionally, um, you know, face more bias, right? And not just LGBT, but being a woman in business, of course, um, and a woman entrepreneur and a woman running a business of my size puts me, you know, somewhere in that you know, 5% of business owners. So, um, and that's changing, but, you know, it hasn't always been thus. So I think that that wrestling with those identities as I was trying to build my career, find my voice, find where I fit, um, was just so present for me. And I never really had the words to describe it, but it was, it was happening to me. It was happening to many people around me. And I've always also thought I would be in nonprofit work for, you know, my whole life when I was younger. And I've always felt very called to use, to use my voice for change and to, as, as sort of an equalizer, if I can, and, um, almost would describe myself as an activist, but interestingly, uh, I do corporate work now mainly, and that work that word is not one I use in those circles, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> because people can't handle it. Uh, but it's okay because I'm also um, I'm also uh, very grounded in the discipline of something called change management and mm-hmm. organizational development, which was I have a master's degree in, and a lot of uh, acculturating the concepts of diversity and inclusion in organizations is about really good change management because you're dealing with resistance, you're identifying stakeholders, you're assessing organizational readiness and willingness to change. Um, and, you know, good news and bad news, there's no organization out there that doesn't need to change. So right, right. <laughs> um, it's just a matter of degree and appetite and, um, you know, the pressure that maybe some are feeling to get on the diversity and inclusion train, whereas maybe they used to really not talk about it, or maybe they talked about it, but weren't really doing anything about it. So there's just a lot of opportunity to be having this conversation for any organization of any size. And that's what my consulting company does is we actually, we enter at whatever point on the journey our clients are and help. So help either craft the approach or accelerate approach that already exists or, you know, 
bring some best practices and ideas for companies about how they can prioritize having a diverse workforce. What does that mean? How do they recruit and retain talent? And um, inclusion speaks to really the environment of the workplace. So once that talent is present, how do they feel in the workplace environment every day in terms of their ability to contribute? Um, And those are sort of those two simple definitions. Um, You can also think of diversity inclusion as diversity as being being asked to the dance and inclusion as being asked to dance. Mm, (laughs) So diversity is bringing people to the table, making sure they're around the table, but that's not enough. Inclusiveness is really how do you then engage and how do you enable those contributions to be made? Um, And then we can go even a step further. further. In my field, we're starting to talk a a lot about belonging, which which is a feeling. So, you know, not only asked to dance, but perhaps asked to plan the whole event, you know, asked to bring your, you know, expected to bring your best dance moves. You know, it's sort of that feeling of belonging that all of us really, really, I think, want deep down. Um, We want to care about what we do. We want to feel purpose in our workplaces and we want to belong on a deep level. And I think that if we can get underneath all of that, uh, we will, we will have better outcomes. So I have a a ton of questions for you. First is you talk about this balance between feeling the stigma of some of your roles, but then also recognizing that you're, you are in a place of privilege. How do you balance that? And how do you help others to see that within themselves too? Yeah, I really, when I hit on this, it, it was like a big unlock for me because I'm a, I'm a white diversity practitioner. Uh, sometimes I walk on the stage and people say, what is she doing? You yeah. know, what's her, what's, what is her skin in the game, so to speak? And, uh, and I, I struggled with that. And I think a lot of people that look like me might not know where they fit and not know how to contribute. And so when I th- thought about this concept of intersectionality, which is coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a professor, originally she talked about it as multiple stigmatized identity and how they um, how they all need to be considered together. So um, an easy way to think about this is, you know, white women's experience and women of color's experience, they're both having a woman experience, but one group is additionally having the experience of being black, for example. And some days that might be a sort of primary experience when they walk in the room, people notice their their ethnicity first and then they deal with all the, you know, things, uh, microaggressions or (laughs) bias, conscious and not overt or not um, coming at you based on that. So, you know, as we walk through the world, there are visible things about us and there are invisible things. And some of us can hide some of our diversity dimensions. We might have a disability. We might have struggle with mental health. Um, We might hide our our ethnicity or our race if we can, quote unquote, pass as white. Hmm. Um, So there's a lot of... And, and certainly LGBT people are the the, the pros at passing, sure. <laughs> many of us. So anyway, um, so what I do is I try to relate this to intersectionality in myself. And I say, I am intersectional. We all are. Um, most of us have levels of privilege. For me, my privilege might come from my socioeconomic background, which you can't see when you meet me. But um, my, you know, I have two master's degrees. <laughs> I've never wanted for anything, honestly. Um, and so while I'm in a very marginalized group in terms of being LGBT, there's these other areas of privilege that offset that tremendously. So, you know, every LGBT person is, is, is their intersectionality impacts how much each of those identities is really felt in a negative way um, when it comes to bias. So I've been very fortunate, I think, um, but I, but I try to just talk about this blend of 
stigmatized identities in myself and where I struggle to be heard and struggle to see role models that share my story that look like me. Um, but I also have a voice because of my sort of more main, mainstream or majority identities, I guess, if you will, where I can use my voice for others. And um, so as an LGBT woman, um, I can do more for people of color who also identify as LGBT. I could do more for trans um, and, and gender nonconforming colleagues and friends and loved ones, because I might be coming from a cisgender place, meaning that um, cis is C-I-S, cisgender means my sense of my gender matches the body that I was born in. Mm -hmm. And so I can have a conversation with others to educate them and, and remove the burden of having to do that all the time from people who are transgender. You know, it's, it's, it's something that I can show my allyship in. And so my challenge to audiences is I, I tell my story in that way. And then I challenge them to say, you have levels of privilege. You are dealing with your own intersectionality. What is that? And then how are you using your, the, the privileges that you do have to get in that room, to have a conversation, to lighten the burden or the load that's being experienced by somebody else who can't have a voice or who will struggle to be heard and be given a fair shot? Yeah. You use the term called allyship. Uh, unpack that for us. Yeah. Allyship um, it came out of the LGBT community. So typically, I mean, it did, not originally, um, but in my own personal experience, originally, I mean, certainly there's always been, there's always been allies to marginalized groups. Um, civil rights is a great example. White allies jumping into the fight, you know, marching, et cetera. In the LGBT community, straight allies really took us... Um, to the point where we could achieve things like marriage equality, right? It just could never have been, I wouldn't say never, but we just needed the critical mass and we needed that not only acceptance by the straight world, but the sponsorship and support and the active championing of the straight world in order to achieve. So, so allyship in the, in the workplace context has been um, in, for example, diversity groups or networks, the gay network would have straight allies that would come go to the meetings, March and pride um, sponsor the group, you know, just be, vi be visible and make it safe for people to come out at the organization. And, and some of my clients, the straight allies outnumber by a long shot, the number of out LGBT people in the company. It's really interesting hmm. that are involved. So, but this concept of allyship goes beyond I'm a straight person and I want to show my LGBTQ colleagues that I'm that I support them. Um, we need more male allies for women. We need more uh, white identified allies that are aware of whiteness and dynamics of um, racial justice and who are showing up to be a voice um, amongst their their colleagues and families as a, a white person who is examining their own participation un, unwitting off, uh, often in, um, you know, systemic problems we have with racism in our country, in our companies, et cetera. So um, allyship means that you are, you know, you're questioning, you're learning, you've, you've sort of undertaken this journey to um, not just sort of passively say I'm an ally, meaning, oh, sure, I'll support that, you know, ask me to write a check. <laughs> yeah. I think true allyship is very proactive, it's activated, it's brave, um, it's at the higher levels, it's un uncompromising, you know, it's bold. Um, it's sort of, you know, shoot first, ask questions later, like, you know, challenging power, um, not being afraid to use your voice and, um, and doing everything you can. And I think we need to move 
those of us who consider ourselves allies, remember the important thing is, you know, you're really not an ally. You could think about it this way. You're not really an ally until someone in a marginalized group identifies you as such and kind of thanks you for being that. You know, I, I would use that always as my benchmark. Hmm. Um, doesn't mean I can't say I I desire to be an ally to this community. That's what I always, that's the language I try to say. Right. Because I, I know that it's a journey for me too. There's a lot more I could be doing. You know, I do this work full time. <laughs> so um, you, you talked about recruiting and retaining versus inclusion and the difference between those two. Do you find that for companies who are trying to uh, be active in, in one of these, that it, it's kind of a snowball effect where once they get the recruiting issue down, that inclusion comes naturally, or is it still another big, massive step for them? Oh my gosh, it's more the latter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, in fact, I mean, recruiting is not easy for diverse talent in particular, depending on if you're in the Midwest or you know in certain areas of the world. Diversity means different things all around the world too. So, But just in that US paradigm, um, you can do a good job of recruiting talent and kind of creating that mix that I was talking about, sort of inviting to the table. But the re- retention piece is more complicated because you've got this talent entering systems that really haven't changed in many cases since, you know, time immemorial. <laughs> uh, they're still very hierarchical. Um, they, if you're a person who's a, not in the majority, for example, coming into a workplace, um, well, at the low levels of the company, actually, you might be in a majority. You might be a woman of color and you might look around and see, say you're in a, I don't know if you're in a customer service professional, you know, mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of diversity in the sort of bottom half of organizations. Um, and, and you'll see within the first year or two of having been hired, people will stick around, of course, right? They're still finding right. their way. But the problem really happens when when the pipeline starts to move upwards. Choices are being made about who gets considered for promotion, who is seen as a leader, right? Which is full, potentially full of bias. Right. Because we haven't seen leaders that look a certain way. We then replicate um, this image of what a leader looks like. We we make safe decision, quote unquote, safe decisions in our lens. Safe meaning, oh, they went to a school I know, or they went to the school I went to, or we know their family, or um, they've done this role before, so they're going to be able to do it here, you know. And and unfortunately, this it's subtle. Not sometimes it's not so subtle, but but the subtle biases that happen in performance reviews. Um, gendered language in terms of how women are are given feedback on their performance. You know, it's it's the likability research around, you know, women being strong and assertive is viewed as having sharp elbows and men exhibiting exactly the same behaviors are viewed as high potential. Hmm. And that is still very real, very, very real um, and well documented. So, so there's a lot of headwinds facing talent that's trying to move up, but the organization and decision makers within the middle management and then senior leadership, there has to be a very intentional pull up that is focused on talent that typically is not considered when these important sort of critical milestone decisions are made. And so, you know, when you see people being passed over or you see this more of the same kind of person being hired over and over and you look upwards and you see a, a leadership team that looks a certain way and it looks nothing like you and you know, you know, when you do see people that look like you, they're sort of downplaying their diversity, right? They're not really out about it or right. they, you know, they just don't make a big thing about it. <laughs> and there's a lot of leaders who who they don't want to be that person. Like they don't want to alert 
or remind people that, oh, they're the senior most Latina executive at the company. I mean, that's not, that's actually not comfortable for a lot of people. And that's valid. I mean, you don't, not everybody wants to be the spokesperson for an entire group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also really exhausting to be the only one and always be, have all eyes turn to you and say, well, what do you think as this, as the senior Latino person here? You know, <laughs> it's, it's tiring, it's exhausting, it's tokenizing. Um, and you're always kind of left wondering, why aren't there more people that look like me here? What is the bias that's uh, being allowed to kind of run rampant and not being corrected in this company? And then you start to look elsewhere, you know, and you see other people leaving and you follow suit because I think what people don't understand is talent watches what everybody else is doing. Like, and they especially are watching who's getting promoted, whose stories are being told, whose success is being celebrated. You know, how is the composition changing? Because that's, that's the evidence. That's the evidence that work is being done on the culture and on retention. You know, it's sort of, I think actually representation, when you look around, that's a lagging indicator. Um, the leading indicator is working on an inclusive culture where, where all kinds of talent feel they can really thrive um, mm-hmm. and where they're choosing to stay because they believe they're getting a fair shot. Um, and then when you, when you invest in that, that diverse talent will stay, they will grow, they will move into leadership roles, they, were, they will be seen by others that look like them. It will be an encouragement, you know, that they have succeeded in the way they have. Um, and other, and it was sort of, it will beget more diversity coming into the pipeline in the first place. It makes recruiting easier when different diverse talent can see in marketing materials, et cetera, you know, they see this company is committed to this and they're walking the talk and here's what their leadership team looks like. But unfortunately that's not, that's really not the um, majority of the cases that I see. I think sadly, and this is why we're so busy (laughs) that, you know, a lot of this just isn't really on people's radar screens and we have to, we really have to teach, teach that this is happening and then help organizations construct a way to get it, to get after it. So you've been in this world for a long time. You're talking 20 years. You've seen a lot of changes, hopefully some some good changes that have come about. Uh, as you look at different generations that are coming up, are you more encouraged by younger people entering into uh, not only at the beginning of their careers, but younger people entering into leadership positions as well? Do you feel encouraged by that? And do you have any hesitations about where we're headed? You know, I am encouraged. Um, I, I have a lot of hope and uh, expectations of the millennial generation to bring to bring their values and to stand by their values in their companies because they are now the majority in the workplace. And by the way, just for the audience, millennials now, believe it or not, millennials are now reaching the age of 40, I heard. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. So Generation Z is coming up behind them. Oldest Generation Zs are about 22, 23 right now. So millennials are the majority demographic generation in the workplace as of like this year, I think, or last year across that line, depends what you read. Um, So with that, they have, they are the most inclusive generation. They have an expectation of inclusive environments at the work as table stakes, and they are infusing their increasing number of leadership roles with that as kind of the price of entry. I think they're still, though, dealing with, you know, a ton of us Gen Xers and baby boomers who are lingering, who are hanging in, who are staying in the workplace longer. And, you know, some of us who don't understand diversity in all its dimensions and embrace it to the extent that that younger generation does. So 
there's still still a lot of stakeholders to be managed. And it's not just as easy as saying, well, they're the majority now in the workplace and all of our problems with diversity are going to be solved. And in fact, there is some disturbing research that, you know, you look at millennials and they're not, it's not smooth sailing. I mean, I think there's still perception gaps between millennial men and millennial women around the the difficulty of being a woman in business, you know, where men might say it's easier than women when they're asked the same exact questions. So there's some really interesting research on millennial men. I, th- I think it's from Boston Consulting Group. It's a really fascinating article. But it's, it's, it's important to uh, not assume that the presence of a generation that happens to be the most diverse and inclusive of any generation we've seen is going to fix our organization. There's no replacement for really hard work. And there's still a lot of bias running around because it's been institutionalized and it's never been uh, looked at and corrected with proactive and consistent action by organizational architects and leaders. So I think we still, it doesn't excuse us from the work. Um, But yes, I think, I think it's really cool. It's also really interesting. I want to point out that millennials are redefining diversity in much broader ways. Um, Mm. So it's not the binary that a lot of us grew up with, which is, black and white in terms of race, right? Or Hispanic or white, you know, you're one thing or the other, or you're gay or you're straight. You're, you know, you're trans or you're not. Um, they are, they are like walking the middle and there's so many things. They are so intersectional and they're so capable um, of describing all of those parts of who they are and really wanting to honor all of who they are um, in what they do every day. And I, I think that's a great that's a great commitment. It's something we should listen to. It's something would well benefit all of us um, to really value all of our diversities and um, to have a bigger, more inclusive conversation about diversity beyond race and gender. I think is, I think is so critical and and I think we'll welcome a lot of us into that conversation who may not struggle with our race per se because of our race or because of our gender, but are are equally struggling with caregiving. Um, we're going through, uh, you know, illness and mental health issues or addiction issues in our family. I mean, there's a lot going on for workers. Um, and I think we need to have a more holistic conversation about all of these things and um, acknowledge what's going on for people in workplaces today. And um, uh, it's really just a great time to to see whole people. And um, we got to do that as employers in order to thrive. Yeah. Now you have a new book coming out later this fall. I want you to talk about that because it's about being an inclusive leader and give us some some tips and some some insight about how, you know, if, if you're coming in a position where you do have some power and you recognize that and you want to use it for good, what are some key strategies you can use? Yeah, the book is out in August of 2019. Um, it is, it, it's, it's fundamentally structured as a journey with four stages. First stage is unaware um, another way to think of that stage sometimes is is apathetic, meaning, you know, I know there's I know there's a problem or I've read something, but I don't really care and I'm not really paying attention. Or it just could be literally sheer unawareness. Um, and a lot of people are there. A lot, a lot of people. I think diversity has been kind of farmed out to diverse people with, you know, underrepresented identities <laughs> um, to do the work of fixing organizations. Yeah. T- tell us how to fix this, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you're, if we can get to aware, meaning we can wake people up out of whatever it is, apathy, resistance, lack of awareness that there's a problem. And then awareness is stage two, 
And then we have a ton of ideas for, okay, so what do you need to learn? Once you're aware and you realize there's a problem, how do you go deeper into that problem? How do you, how do you become kind of uh, competent about different headwinds that different communities of your coworkers are facing and experiencing every day? And all of this, of course, is leading to being a better ally, of course. Um, and then from awareness, the next stage is activation. So what are you going to do with that knowledge that you gained in awareness? How are you going to activate and use your voice. And that that's a big step because it then now it's sort of going public, you know, with, hey, I want to make a change and I'm not going to just do the private work. I'm going to actually start to take visible action and get feedback on that and use my voice for change. And I'm going to mess up and I'm going to need coaching and feedback and, you know, sometimes forgiveness for, you know, making a well-intentioned, but sort of something that action that ultimately backfired. Um, there's a lot of learning and activation because it's a muscle and, you know, it's trial and error. You have to practice it to get comfortable. And finally, the last stage in the book is advocacy, which is is what I would call true allyship, meaning, you know, you're like we talked about earlier, you're brave, you're bold, you don't care. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you're smart about how you create change, you line things up appropriately, you know how to deal with resistance, you know, you, you've kind of done the work. Um, so you have that awareness, you've activated, you've found your voice, you figured out what tools you need. And so each chapter is structured along that way and has a lot of ideas and reading and footnotes and things to consider. Um, and yeah, I, I hope that it encourages more people to say, hey, this is my, not just my issue too, but my opportunity to be a better leader. And it doesn't have to be, it's not like taking your medicine, you know, it's not something that's unpleasant. It actually, it actually enhances your ability to lead at any, in any generation from any place in the organization, your colleagues are expecting it of you. And if you look at diversity and you sort of keep it at arm's length and you say it doesn't apply to you, it's act, you're actually at risk as a leader of falling behind, not resonating with your team, your colleagues, um, not being inclusive and getting the most performance out of others, um, and not being really a desirable person to collaborate with and to work with. So to me, this is this is critical. It's a business book. It is absolutely, um, it's not just, I mean, it is a business book, but it's, it's applicable outside of quote unquote business too, but it's in any, any sort of context, whether it's a church board, um, community organizations, um, not so not just the workplace. Even with your kids, you know, when you want to be an inclusive parent, you know, how do you, how do you go along this journey of being an inclusive parent? You can actually apply the steps to understanding your kid who thinks they might be, you know, want gender nonconforming, and they just shared that with you. A lot of parents are are reaching me and saying, you know, I'm so uh, I've been told this by my kid. You know, what do I do now? And um. So anyway, maybe that's how to be an inclusive parent is, is next. <laughs> yeah, that's the next book coming. Great. Well, Jennifer, it's been great to talk to you. We could we have so many other questions we could cover, but uh, where should people go to stay in touch with you? Thank you for asking. Uh, so my company consulting, if you're in an organization and you suspect you need some consulting assistance, we're at jenniferbrownconsulting.com. And um, my speaking and authoring really is, and my podcast uh, transcripts are on jenniferbrownspeaks.com. There's some videos of my talks there as well. And my podcast is called The Will to Change. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcast content. Um, we're on our third year. We have 50 episodes, true stories of diversity and inclusion. 
Uh, and then I'm in all social channels. I'm heavy on Twitter, which is at Jennifer Brown. I'm on Instagram at Jennifer Brown Speaks. And I'm in LinkedIn and Facebook, Jennifer Brown Consulting. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, no, it's been great to have you. Uh, I've learned a lot about this topic and I'm glad you're in the position you are and leading us to to learn more. Well, thanks for being an ally, Neil. (laughs) This has been the Work Minus Podcast. If you like what we're doing, go to workminus.com where you can see the show notes and a full transcript for every episode. You can also sign up for our newsletter where you'll get the latest progressive ideas about how you can build a better workplace. 